You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. With me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. I have news. Yes, gather round my guild of historical descent. There's merch coming. Yay! I had like a bunch of DMs and emails from people going, when's the merch? Where's the merch? Why don't you have it? Where is it? Yada, yada, yada. And I thought, okay, I really need to pull my finger at my arse and actually get it sorted. So soon, in the next couple of days, there shall be merch. And I'm going to have an announcement coming up. I'm going to have more details for you. I only have some of the details now. But for all of my followers in the States, guess who's coming to visit? (gasps) Moi? Me? Darlings? Yes. Yes, indeed. So yeah, um, I'm coming to America, the United States of America, one might even say, at the sort of end of May, because I'm going to New Jersey for a little bit. I know, I have people going, why are you going? I just am, okay? I just am. Maybe I'm just a really big fan of the VUSQ universe. You don't know my life. Anyway, <laughs> I am actually a really big fan of the viewers universe. I love Kevin Smith movies. I really do. And yeah, so I'm going to be in New Jersey for a couple of days and then I'm heading to Kansas because I'm going to be a guest speaker at an event and I will have more details to follow once I have everything locked, loaded and ready to go. Once they're ready to promote I'll be ready to share some info. I'm very excited about this because it's it's the first time I've been, or first time I will be, like, across the pond. Like, I've never been to the US. I've been to Europe and other places. I mean, I live in Europe, but I've been to other places in Europe. But I've never gone out of the continent, so this is very exciting for me. I'm kind of tempted to see if I can get like a small bar or space to do like a live podcast recording in in New Jersey because I'm there for a couple days like I wonder if there's a way to make that happen if anyone 
listens to me and is from that area because I'm flying into like Newark and I think I'm going to stay like 20 minutes at most away from the airport because I don't need that kind of chaos when I'm traveling back and forth. So if anyone knows of any way to do that, again, because I'm not from there, that would be super. Get in contact with me. Let's make it happen. Yes. Also, yeah, the reviews, the reviews are still coming and I love you also very much. And then I got the most amazing recommendation for how I should go about, you know, my, my sleuthy murder mystery obsession. And I am so excited. Oh, also, in addition, furthermore, my darling friend Shauna made a video. It was a stitch of another video talking about poison rings, like Catherine de' Medici, that kind of thing. And, you know, how much I love them, because I do. I, I, I may have an unnatural obsession with poison and and stuff. But yeah, I, I love poison rings. And now a jeweler might be making me one. Like this is so exciting. I I like I don't know how to how to deal with this much positivity. Like I have ADHD and anxiety and I continuously like struggle with that. And I have a habit I know you're shocked, um, of overthinking and I always go to the worst case scenario. So when it comes to something positive happening, I'm just like, it's very unusual for me and it's a little bit tough for me to deal with. And all of this, like, support and positivity and that people are just giving. They're just giving so much. Like, it's, I I don't know how to deal with that level of um, consideration. I don't know, you know, compassion and everything that goes with it. And yeah, oh goodness, we have Valentine's Day coming up as well. So I'm kind of tempted, because my friends don't listen to this, so it doesn't really matter. I'm tempted to just go out and buy a bunch of Valentine's cards and just post them out to my pals. Just because I can, just to show them they're loved, because everything sucks the world's kind of shitty there's a cost of living crisis i'm gonna get my friends valentine's cards they deserve some goddamn love might not be from the person they want it to be from but they'll just have to deal with that <laughs> but i know what you're thinking you're thinking quit your jibber jabber and fact me and fact you i will but first we've gonna get our source on our sources are chanel and her world Friends, Fashion and Fame by Edmond Charles Roux. Coco Chanel, An Intimate Life by Lisa Cheney. Sleeping with the Enemy, Coco Chanel, Nazi Agent by Hal Vaughan. Mademoiselle Chanel by C.W. Gortner. Coco Chanel, The Legend and the Life by Justine Picardie, Mademoiselle, Coco Chanel and the Pulse of History, by Rhonda K. Garlick. Coco Chanel, from Fashion Icon to Nazi Agent, by Geoffrey Jones and Emily Grandjean. And of course we have our favourites, 
biography.com and history.com. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. As some of you know, I have a special, special place in my heart for harlots, whores, hussies and strumpets. And the thing is about the women who have these labels, generally, the reason they make the choices they make is because they have to, because there are no other options, because they do what is necessary. And quite a lot of the time, like myself, you'll find yourself rooting for these badass women, as you fucking should. And you're probably going to feel that way about Coco Chanel up until the midpoint of this tale, at which point you're going to get very angry. I mean, if you have a soul. Uh, but you, you are not going to be on her side. You will be. You'll be backing her up until a certain point. And then the shit's going to hit the fan. And choices are made. And not necessarily the best ones. You know, for humanity. But we're going to get there. But I guess we should start from the beginning. And so we shall. But one more thing before we do. I would like to formally apologize to any French or French-speaking people who have to hear me pronounce words with this accent um, because I'm probably going to fuck up a bunch of them, like absolutely. But let's just get into it. Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel was born on the 19th of August, 1883. We have a birthday, everybody. We have a location. We have a date. Not just a year, an actual date. I mean, it is the 1880s, so, you know, whatever. But still, look at this progress. Come on. Okay, so Chanel is born to Albert Chanel and Eugenie Jean de Vol. So, she's basically known as Jean for most of her life. She's never really known as Eugenie or anything else. So she is born in a poor house in Saumur. It's basically this um, poor house run by nuns. Nun, nuns, nuns. It's always those bloody nuns. So she is born in this poor house uh, to Albert and Jean. Albert is a traveling salesman. So he does door-to-door sales, effectively. He is selling work clothes and underwear, like undergarments. That is his thing. And so he would travel around. He's very nomadic, who even though he is, you know, going around the place, still manages to get Jean pregnant quite a lot. See, Gabrielle here, she is the second child born to the couple this year. Like, you know, two in one year. That's Irish twins. You might be in France, but those are Irish twins. So her sister Julie is her older sister. And a year later, Albert and Jean get married. So yeah, she's born out of wedlock. So in this day and age, Gabrielle Donneur Chanel was officially a bastard baby born in a poor house. 
And after she is born, her mother Jean is so ill that she cannot go and like sign the birth register. And Albert, he's off gallivanting, selling undergarments of no particular description. I could not find out exactly what he sold, so I can only assume it's hosiery and corsets or maybe whatever old-fashioned bloomers, maybe? Bloomers? It could be bloomers. But he's not around, and so her name, her surname, actually gets registered incorrect. So instead of being Chanel, it's Chasnel. And it's because of this that we actually found out about her original upbringing. So when Chanel makes it big, she bullshits. So she says she's born 10 years later than she is. And then she uh, basically says that she had a glamorous and wonderful upbringing. So yeah, in 1884, Jeanne and Albert, they get married. Effectively, her family banded together. United was the term used most often. They got together to um, pay for Albert. Now, I don't know if this meant there was some kind of dowry involved or whether they just offered general financial support. But I suppose they just didn't want Jeanne to be an unmarried mother of two children. And so, yes, here we go. They get married. The couple then go on to have six children. Well, four more children. So you have Juliet, Gabrielle, Alphonse, Antoinette, Lucien, and Augustine. And Augustine... Augustin? Eh, one of those. He only lives till six or seven months. He doesn't make it past infancy. So this family all together live in this one room lodging. So they're lodging in one room. They're renting, right? They don't even own a one-roomed building. They are renting one room in a building. And they're all crammed together in this little town, um, Brive-la-Gaillette. Which I've probably mispronounced. Sorry, French people, I'm trying my best. And they are not doing well financially, clearly. They are, well, how would I put this? Dirt poor. Broke as shit, right? So yes, things are not going well. And they're about to get fucking worse. Because when she turns 11 years old, her mother, Jeanne, she dies. And her dad just cannot support the full family on his own. Or he just can't handle it. Not surprised by any stretch of the imagination, Albert. Not surprised. So he sends his boys away to become farmhands. So they're farm labourers. He's like, that's it. You've got jobs. So they must be like much, much younger. Because you've got like Gabrielle, she's 11. She's the second oldest. And depending on the time of year, you know, Julie could also be 11. And then the rest of the kids, they're going to be just decreasing from there. So these are young children and they're being sent away to be farmhands. Like that is not even remotely an easy task, but off they go. The girls, however, they were sent away to the incredibly strict convent at Abozin, 
which was effectively, it was an orphanage run by some of the scariest people in the world. You guessed it, the fucking nuns are at it again. So the congregation of the Sacred Heart of Mary, and the whole point of this orphanage is to take care of abandoned and orphaned Catholic girls. Or at least people they can then turn Catholic. I mean, it's France. Basically, everyone's Catholic. And surprise, surprise, it's fucking horrific there. It is severe and stark and it is absolutely awful. But fortunately, this was where Chanel learned to sew. Unfortunately, at the age of 18, like many, many children in the system, Chanel ages out and she gets, well, she has to leave. So Julie would have already been sent out probably earlier in the year. But I'm not actually sure where Julie went to. Anywho, Chanel moves to a boarding house for Catholic girls in Moulin. So there you have it. Abandoned by her father, sent off to an orphanage, aged out of the orphanage and having to live in a Catholic boarding house. Well, she gets a job as a seamstress. So that is her day job. But Chanel, she wants more more from this. So she moonlights at a cabaret. Something that Chanel really did have going for her was her looks. So she was young and she was attractive and she manages to get a wee gig in La Rotonde, which is a pavilion in Moulin. So she's singing at this cafe concert in this wee cabaret and she would sing in between like the main acts. So she was like a wee filler. You know, nowadays you'd have like a comic or something. They probably did have a comic actually and other such fun things. But she would come out and sing in between the main acts. So she wasn't paid per se by the cabaret. She would get paid in tips. So whenever she would perform in between the big acts, like a wee dish would be going round like a collection plate. And people would put money in for her. So this particular cabaret was oft frequented by cavalry officers. So these young military men would go in and watch her perform and listen to her sing and perhaps even dare have a conversation with her between performances. So yeah, she went from one collection plate to another one way or another, really. So it is here where Chanel gets her nickname. She tries to say it's because she sang a song, but no, no. It actually comes from the word cocotte, which means kept women. Another phrase for that could also be lady of the night. Basically, she survived by the funding of men. Basically, the idea is that Coco Chanel was a sugar baby. And frankly, cannot really blame her at this point. You know what? It's probably, I think, still the Victorian era. You do you, babe. You know what I mean? And uh, she was very, very popular, by all accounts, with the military men that visited La Rodonde. Very popular indeed. All I'm saying, just putting it out there, 
I think that Mademoiselle Chanel clearly has a type. So when she's 23, she moves to Vichy for the summer season. Vichy, if you don't know, is not just a skincare brand. I think it does makeup too. I'm fairly certain I have Vichy foundation, but even their lightest shade that they had available doesn't match my skin tone because I'm so incredibly pale. Like, I'm naturally a pale shade of blue. It takes me, like, a week of sunbathing to become white. So Vichy is this spa resort. And it had everything. It had concert halls and cafes and theatres and cabarets and everything that went with it. And Chanel, she has stars in her eyes. She is ready for this. And as we said before, Chanel is young and pretty. But her voice was... Mm, I'm gonna go with mediocre. Like, it's, it's less than great. You know, good, but not quite there. Not the standard of the Vichy Spa Resort. And so she gets audition after audition because, you know, she's gorgeous. She's attractive. She's young. But she just doesn't have you know, the talent to be there, you know? So after, you know, failing audition after audition, she gets a job as a water girl. So the Vichy water, it has like minerals in it and it's supposed to be like regenerative and amazing. It has curative mineral properties. Mm. But anyway, she gets a job as a water girl at the Grand Creel. And when the Vichy summer season is over, she returns back to Moulin and La Rotonde. And it's at this point it becomes crystal clear to her that she is not in fact destined for the stage. So she needs to figure out a new game plan. She needs a man. Like she's astute enough to know that in this world, she needs that. Unless we don't judge at this point, it's 1906 and she's a woman who grew up in abject poverty. This woman is in the turn of the century, broke as shit, fucked around from pillar to post, abandoned and she needs to survive. So she goes, fuck this for a game of soldiers. She needs a man, a rich man, preferably. Because here's the thing, if you have ever been dirt poor in your life, if you have ever lived in any moment of poverty, that will stick with you and you will not want to go back there again. Like that is right in the back of your brain. There is a panic button there. So, you know, yes. At this point, we're still, we're still on Chanel's side. Good for her. You do what you need to do, honey. So she meets this ex-cavalry officer and what do you know? textile heir Etienne Balsan and she becomes his mistress. Again, good for her. You get with that rich man and you take his money. So Chanel gets with Balsan and they move into his chateau Royalieu. I have pronounced it incorrectly, désolé, mon français très mauvais. And so she moves in with him, thus usurping his courtesan Emilienne Delincion. She gets kicked to the curb, as is the way 
you know, it's just how things goes. But she manages to find something else for herself. So Coco Chanel is the mistress, the courtesan, to textile heir Etienne Barson. And they live at his chateau for three years. And they live it up, let me tell you. That is a champagne lifestyle. There's diamonds and pearls and fashion. It is self-indulgent. There's decadence. There is parties. There is satisfaction. Like, remember how Antony and Cleopatra had this big, indulgent, soiree lifestyle? These two do. They are living it up. Balsam is mm, not faithful. Are we surprised? Absolutely fucking not. This is a man, and also a man from the past. A rich man from the past. There's no stopping them, really. So, after those three years, she begins an affair with his buddy. Now again, this is 1908. She's a woman, and, you know, she allegedly replaced a courtesan, meaning... That she could very well easily be replaced. That's just how things go. I mean, clearly there was no bro code going on here. But she starts seeing this other fella. I mean, he's not faithful. Why should she be? This gal has no time for your double standards. As she should. So she starts this affair with Captain Arthur Edward Capel. Who was an English aristocrat. And so these two men start vying for her affections, right? And I don't know what it is about Chanel. Was she charming? Did she have an enchanting vagina? Who's to say? All I know is these two guys start a bidding war. Like she is even quoted as saying, time for my terrible French impression, here we go. <clears throat> Two gentlemen were outbidding for my odd little buddy. I mean, that's a weird way to put it, but yeah. So there is a bidding war happening for Chanel's affections. And Chanel, during this time, she has become like a qualified milliner. So she makes hats. And she starts making hats and designing hats. And she opens up this little boutique on the Rue Cambon in Paris called Chanel Mode. And it only sells hats. Just a hat shop. And about two years later, like this famous actress, Gabrielle Doziat, she wears her hats to this play and all of her performances... And next thing you know, sales are booming, skyrocketing. Everybody wants a Chanel hat. She becomes, you know, the designer of the moment. So everything is coming up Melhouse. And the following year, she opens up another boutique. And this is financed by Captain Arthur Capel. And it's in Deauville. And, you know, she's expanding, she's moving out there, and she starts designing these casual clothes, leisure wear, and sport. Well, here's the thing. Her casual, and maybe your casual, or my casual, are very different types of casual. Like, this is rich people casual, not, you know, going to the shops in my loungewear casual. No, this is... This is, mm, I shall wear my casual tea dress casual. You know what I mean? Says me who's currently recording in a Powerpuff Girls Snuggie. So in this boutique, she is selling 
hats, obviously, but she's also got jumpers or um, it'd be sweaters to my American followers, sweaters. And she does this thing called the sailor blouse, which is known as la marinière. Business is going well, but then there's a problem. World War One breaks out, 1914, and there is a lack of fabric. But Chanel, being the ingenuitive little bitch that she is, she decides to use tricot and jersey. So these fabrics were generally used for men's underwear. They're affordable, basically cheap, and she can get access to them because they're not used for military uniforms or anything necessary like that. So this really plays into her. And she does this really fucking smart move where she hires her auntie and her sister. You're thinking that's good. She's supporting family. So her paternal aunt is basically very similar in age to like her and her sisters. So Adrienne, her auntie, and her sister Antoinette, she gets them to wear her designs and to walk around the town of Deville. It's in Deville, Chanel in Deville. So they would saunter through the town of Deville wearing the lovely garments designed by Chanel and um, basically show them off to everybody living there because, I mean, it's the best form of advertisement at the time because, ooh, where did you get that lovely dress? Oh, from Chanel. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But a lot of the people that were coming into Deville, they were fleeing Paris. So the trendy Parisians, they wanted nice clothes. And where were they going to go? Well, voila. And Chanel, her business just keeps growing. So she opens up this new business in Biarritz on the Côte Basque. And it's not really a storefront per se, uh... Well, it's not a storefront at all, because they don't put it in a storefront. They put it in a fucking villa opposite the casino, which, I mean, you can't deny that's a really good move. I mean, that's just smart. So the place is full of these mainly rich Spaniards. And you've had people that are fleeing one war or the other, and they just need, or they want, because they're rich people, they want nice things, right? They do. They live in luxury. They just can't help themselves, right? It's just the way they are. So, the wealthy, they still want to be stylish. But this is wartime, so clothes also have to be practical. So, like, the jersey fabric and all that stuff, it just fucking makes sense. Because a lot of the trendy Parisians, 
they're working in the hospital because the men are away at war and the women are doing their part. That's just, you know, how it was. And this Biarritz locale, it is so absolutely profitable. It is raking in the cash. Like, she was able to pay back Carpel's original investment, right? I mean, she doesn't want to be beholden to no man. I can appreciate that. I can understand that. So she pays him back his original investment, but she still, you know, stays his lover. Like, she was hoping that they would get married, but he was not about to marry some courtesan. Like, it wasn't going to happen. It just wasn't. And at some point around about the Biarritz thing going great, she meets Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich of Russia. They too begin a love affair. And you can understand this because, well, she knows this dude ain't gonna marry her. She's looking for her next, you know, security. And the thing about Carpel or Carpel, as I keep calling him, eh, is that they are still stooping, you know, even when he marries Lady Diana Wyndham in 1918. Like, they're continuing this affair. I'm not entirely sure if he got married before or after the end of the war, but he got married anyway. Now, 1919 comes along, war is over, and Chanel registers as a couturier. And she sets up her maison de couture at 31 Rue Cambon, Paris. Ah, uh, but it's uh, not all fun and games because that very year when she's set up as a couturier, Arthur Carpel is involved in a car accident and he dies. And she is very upset about the whole thing. Like, she even says that her heart, a part of it died that day. Like, she very much grieved the loss of him. But you know what they say, nothing gets you over the last one, like the next one. So, 1920 comes along and she meets the Russian composer Igor Stravinsky. So the Stravinsky family, they have fled, you know, Soviet Russia. There's been a revolution, they're not happy about it, they are getting the hell out of Dodge. Now Stravinsky, he is the um, composer for the Ballet Russe, so the Russian Ballet, right? And so they fled and she puts the family up in her house for um, seven months, I think, in total. Which, you know, fair play. Call a spade a spade. Good on you, Chanel. And it's here where negotiations start happening. She ends up donating 300,000 francs to the Russian ballet. And so it starts performing in, in France. And things are going well for Chanel. She's got her couture house. She is designing the costumes for the Russian ballet. Oh, quelle surprise. Wonder how she got that gig. And she is touring with Stravinsky. She's also shagging him, unbeknownst to his wife. So, hmm. Now, like I said, up until this point, you would, could, would, and I was, Rooting for Mademoiselle Gabrielle Coco Chanel. And this is the turning point where um, the angle shifts. I mean, how to put this in the nicest way possible. Frankly, Coco Chanel is tilting pretty sharply bitchward. 
and it only gets worse from here. But anyway, 1922 at the Longchamp races, she meets Pierre Wertheimer. One thing leads to another and the Wertheimer... Wertheimer? Wertheimer? The brothers, they become massive investors in Parfum Chanel. They provide full financing for the production, marketing and distribution of Chanel Number no. 5. So they would get like the majority of the profits because they had the majority of the investments. And initially, Coco Chanel, she is absolutely fine with this agreement. She puts her name on it, but she's not involved in like the business side of things. So they own this. These Jewish brothers own this. This is going to be important later on. But yes, initially Chanel is happy with this business arrangement. Over time, she becomes less happy. I mean, it could be because of, you know, her habitual drug use. So yeah, she becomes pals with Monsieur Sert, who is one of the bohemian elite in Paris. And she's the wife of um, José Maria Sert, the Spanish painter. So they just start, like, hanging out and doing drugs. Like, Chanel becomes addicted to morphine. And if the stories are true... Chanel had some of the quote-unquote best cocaine parties in Paris. I mean, don't be shocked. Back in the day, everything had like heroin or morphine or opium or cocaine. Just raisins. Everything. And at this point in her life, things are going well for Chanel. You know, she gets introduced to British high society. She meets Winston Churchill the Prince of Wales, and the Duke of Westminster, who is, how do I put this, um, a disgusting anti-Semite. So he fucking hates Jews. Absolutely can't stand them, doesn't even like it when they're a wee bit Jewish, not at all. That was a really bad joke. My, my dad's side is Jewish, so um, they can kick my ass for making that joke later. So yeah, she is dealing with this Duke of Westminster and he is lavishing her with jewels, art, decadent shit as per fucking usual and he gets her a home in Mayfair. Now I've mentioned this before, you get a Monopoly board, Mayfair's the purple one, it's it's where the money is. Like only rich people live in Mayfair, you know. Oh yes, not just an anti-Semite but also hated the gays. And are we really surprised? No, not even a little bit. So while she's swanning about England, not only does she have the Duke of Westminster on a tail, but you know, Edward, the Prince of Wales, he is also chasing her. That's right, the one who abdicates. Uh-huh, yeah. And apparently they had a something-something going on, but it fizzles out at some point. Probably because the Duke of Westminster gives her this fucking patch of land in France where she builds a villa, La Posa. Now, I cannot be mad for her for taking, you know, money off, off of British royals to build her shit. Like, I can't be mad at that. So Chanel has been rubbing elbows and shoulders with the trendy French, the British aristocracy. What's next? Movie stars? Absolutely. She starts designing in, like, 1931... She starts designing for 
the moving pictures. So she goes to Hollywood in a white train decked out to be luxurious. Think, you know, I was going to say the Polar Express. That's wrong. Orient Express. The Polar Express, fuck's sake. No. So she goes over there and she dresses these movie stars and does costume for film. She gets Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich to be her private clients, which, I mean, of course she does. That's fine. But she does not like Hollywood. She finds it incredibly distasteful. She doesn't like it. You know, it's not her bag. It's beneath her, effectively. And um, and she really doesn't get or doesn't appreciate, I think, the Hollywood glamour because she was very... Like, you see her designs. They're very representative of who she is as a designer. And Hollywood was just more, you know? And she was not. Back to her personal life, though. She is shagging the poet Pierre Reverde and the designer Paul Irib. Now, her and Paul, they are together up until 1936 when he dies. And yeah. The thing about Paul Irib, or Irebe, I don't know how to pronounce his name and I don't care. Again, because he's a fucking anti-Semite and I have absolutely no patience for those kind of arseholes. He's a bigot, I don't give a fuck, he dies, adios. So not only was Chanel, you know, having these affairs with these dodgy fucking dudes, she was also getting, uh, I don't know, insecure, paranoid and absolutely batshit crazy. I don't say that lightly because... There's this designer, Elsa Schiaparelli, who's, I think she's Italian, and I will cover her someday because she's just fucking awesome. So she's very avant-garde. She's fun and funky and she's has these sort of um, hints of, of surrealism. You know, she's inspired by Dali and things like that. And the very boyish, the very traditional lines and shapes, the very austere designs of Chanel they aren't quite cutting it anymore so it's coming into like through the 30s and this woman is just taking over haute couture and while everyone is singing Schiaparelli's praises and everything else Chanel ends up collaborating with Jean Cocteau on on this theatre piece and basically it gets torn to shreds much like her designs Uh, because they they were just not good they were very affected they were dodgy nobody liked them and everyone is still singing these damn praises by by Schiaparelli and so Schiaparelli is calling her like the hat maker and and Chanel is referring to her rival as the girl who makes clothes because she doesn't have you know professional training she just kind of made her way in the world I mean Schiaparelli was rich but you know still so then there is the costume party. This all comes to a head. And they're at this party and Elsa Schiaparelli is dressed as a tree. I can't remember what Chanel was dressed as. I seem to have blocked it from my memory. So Chanel goes over to her and asks her to dance. You know, which seems innocuous enough. That seems nice. Maybe she's making amends. Maybe she's playing up for the elite that are surrounding them. A mm, little bit crazier than that. Wee bit, wee bit bad. What she does is she manoeuvres 
Elsa Schiaparelli. Towards an open flame and sets her on fire. She set her on fire. That was a plan. That was a deliberate action this woman did. That is not what somebody in the right frame of mind does. One does not just set your rival on fire. I mean, what the fuck? In 1936, there was a French general labour strike. So yeah, all of the labourers, they go on strike. This fucking hurt Chanel. Because she is very, um, well, right wing. She doesn't believe in unions. She doesn't believe in strikes. She's not really a fan of fair wages. You know what I mean? So she is very angry that her workers want higher wages. You know, you know, just a standard, standard living, you know. As someone who grew up dirt poor, she should understand that. But for some reason, (laughs) I guess she's too far away from it now. Especially considering she's still telling people that she is, in fact, you know, had such a wonderful, grand life growing up. Then, of course, World War II. So, 1939, you know, war is declared. And Chanel just straight up closes her fashion house. It is just stopped. She goes on to say that it's not a time for fashion. And, effectively, 4,000 workers lose their, their jobs. She just cuts off 4,000 women straight away. It's not as if she could have, I don't know, worked with the French government to have them so shit. I don't know. There were things you do in wartime. So yeah, she does that. And she gets really angry. Because on more than one occasion during this time, Chanel states that she believes that Jewish people you know, are a threat to Europe in general. And they were the cause of the Bolshevik government in the Soviet Union. Like, the Jews. But of course, Madame Chanel, she needs somewhere to stay at this point. And does she stay in her villa? Does she stay in many of her apartments where she could live in England? Or elsewhere in France? No, she moves into the Hotel Ritz, aided by an old friend that she knew pre-war, a certain Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. He was a German aristocrat, he was a member of the Prussian army, you know, before World War One. Well, before Germany became Germany, so like Prussia, Bismarck, the whole shebang, anyway. He was there. And Baron von Dinklage, he he had a special relationship with Madame Chanel. And he was the one that made sure she managed to get an abode within the Hotel Ritz. He made sure she got in there. And they have an affair. Oh, what? You're, you're shocked. I'm shocked. Are you shocked? This is shocking news. Fuck off. So, we know now that many French military documents have been unsealed. Remember the Wertheimer brothers? Yes, the men who own the the Chanel Parfum. See, the Nazis were putting into law that Jewish people could not own businesses. You know, 
that thing was coming into France as well as everywhere else. And Chanel knew this was going to be happening, again, because of her shagging a Nazi. And so she starts petitioning the Germans to reclaim her sole ownership of the brand, of the, the Chanel perfume. So she was actively trying to get rid of her Jewish business partners. In more ways than one, she basically put a target on their backs. So she tried to fuck them over. But the Wertheimer brothers, they weren't idiots. They could see this coming. So Chanel writes to the government administrator in charge of Jewish assets, right? And she's like, I own it because Parfum Chanel is still the property of Jews and as such had been legally abandoned by the owners. And so she was, you know, trying to reclaim it back. Unbeknownst to Chanel though, right? They had legally turned control of Parfum Chanel to Felix Agnon, who was a Christian French businessman. (laughs) And... So they had transferred all the deeds to this dude in 1940 and she's petitioning in 41 so she had no idea this has happened because they were like, nope, this ain't happening. So this legal battle continues and Chanel hires the French Prime Minister's son-in-law as her lawyer to sue, you know, the Wertheimers. Luckily enough, in, um, like after a while, they come to an agreement, but it doesn't change the fact that she tried to, you know, destroy two Jewish men. And if you think that's where it stops, oh no, it gets much worse. We don't know exactly why, but Chanel had a codename, Westminster, and a German agent spy number. F7124. So the Germans invade France. She moves into a hotel where the Germans are. She then spends a lot of time with them, having affairs with them, tries to destroy Jewish people. And, well, you know what's funny? Women in France were punished for horizontal collaboration with German officers, right? What would happen is they would get their head shaved and stuff and just humiliated and a bunch of other shit. They would be tried and everything. Many things would happen. This didn't happen to Chanel. Oh no. The moment the war was over, she puts this sign up in her store saying that Chanel number five is free to all GIs. And then she gets the hell out of Dodge and fucks off to Switzerland so that she cannot be tried as a Nazi collaborator. Now, this to me does not seem like the actions of an innocent woman. And what do you know? I'm fucking right. So, she is involved in a Third Reich plan to take control of Madrid. Like, Spain. Like, she's part of this. I think I'm going to go into Operation Model Hut and, uh, in like a separate bitty because there's just too much of it going on. But basically, yeah. So she gets interrogated in 1944 from the Free French Purge Committee and they're like, oh, we can't find evidence. And fun fact, Chanel started telling people that 
Winston Churchill had her freed so that she would escape prosecution so she wouldn't have to deal with the shit that she did. But yes, post-war, she bollocks off to Switzerland. And you know who stays with her sometimes there? Baron von Dinklage. That's right, that motherfucker is there with her. What? So she's safe and relatively secure in Switzerland and she sells her Villa La Posa because Switzerland's expensive. You need to have more money. Anywho, business-wise, things are, things are changing. So Dior has come onto the scene with his new look and it is just overtaking everything. You've got all these like male designers really taking over at this point. You've got Balenciaga, Piguet, Fath, Dior, obviously. And she was like, she fucking hated these designs. You know, the cinched waist, the boobs, like the very feminine, the very, lots of fabric, lots of shape. She despised this and she was like, female designers will just rebel against this. Arg. And, um, you know, hmm. so anyway, Chanel's like 70 or over 70 at this point. And her, you know, her couture house, her maison couturier has been closed for, I don't know, nearly two decades. And she's like, I need to re-enter the fucking fashion world. And Pierre Wertheimer, who... Oh, how do I put this? Um, clearly did not hold a grudge and also liked making money and knew he could. He financially just backs this comeback collection. And so, how do I put this? So, like, a lot of, a lot of the um, French press are really apprehensive to, like, comment on it. But, like, America and Britain were all like, oh, look at Chanel, look at the clean lines, it's beautiful it's amazing and of course this is the creation of the chanel suit as she moved to the 60s and into like the early 70s chanel's getting angrier and intense and not fun to be around tyrannical is actually the word that's used most often but she is still living at the ritz she went back there because of course she fucking did she is preparing the spring catalogue and she goes for a long drive in the afternoon. And she's feeling kind of shitty. She comes back and she says to her maid, You see, this is how you die. Because she has her maid with her in the Hotel Ritz. She then goes to bed and the very next day, Gabrielle Coco Chanel passes away on Sunday the 10th of January 1971 at the Hotel Ritz at the age of 87. And frankly, she lived far too long for someone who was so much of an arsehole. You know how sometimes they say that you can separate art from the artists? I don't think that's the case here. If you look at any of Chanel's designs, they're very austere. They're very right wing in their shape like there is no like she is clearly inspired by this you know so here's the thing i love the perfume coco mademoiselle by chanel i thought it was amazing but i actually just stopped wearing it when you know i learned initially about chanel's involvement and then 
like a few years ago, I had discovered, you know, the situation with the Wertheimers and the fact that they owned the company. They're the ones who, who had it. You know, they claimed it back and their descendants still own the fucking thing. So the very people she tried to destroy, they still own that company. And I see that as a massive fuck you to Coco Chanel. And as such, like that was the point I decided to start wearing the perfume again. And that's why I don't mind wearing Chanel stuff because she lost in the end. I mean, I wish she lost harder. And as a woman, I have heard the phrase, you know, Coco Chanel always says to take off one accessory before you leave the house. And to that I say, no, add another one on, add another one. Wear as many accessories as you fucking like. Shove a crown on, it doesn't. Wear whatever the fuck you want because fuck minimalism, fuck austerity, fuck Coco Chanel. Frankly, she should go choke on a bag of Nazi dicks, the fascist loving twat waffle. <sighs> okay. So that's today's uh, tale. If you liked my retelling of, of this piece of history, feel free to rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you rate and review five stars, it really helps me on the business end. It really pushes me up the charts and it gets more people seeing this podcast and it will really, really help me. It absolutely will. And you don't have to say anything, but you could write anything in there. It doesn't matter. You could insult me. It really doesn't matter. I mean, I do love compliments, so there is that. But anyway, yes, I should give you some recommendations. So, reading recommendations, I'm going to go with, ooh, Advice from Strangers by Rachel Paris. It's just, it's just a good read. For listening, I'm going to recommend the podcast Trashy Divorces. Just go, you're going to love it, trust me. And for watching, let's not pretend that the Renaissance has passed us by. Uh, just watch as many Brendan Fraser films as you can. I'm talking Blast from the Past, George of the Jungle, The Mummy, The Mummy Returns. We don't talk about the third one, it's not good. So them, go watch them. And also Doom Patrol, I mean, you don't get to see his face, but he's funny in it. If you like weird things, you'll like Doom Patrol. But yes, Renaissance. Anyway, I am going to go now and I will chat to you again soon. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye.